Okay, today my guest is Professor Juan Alcacer. I will keep my introduction short to maximize our time with him. In the next 30 minutes or so, we'll talk about Juan as a person. Professor Alcacer is a thought leader and an esteemed scholar, and finally is a mentor to many PhD students and junior faculty. For the sake of time, I will skip many of his accomplishments and give you a very quick snapshot. Professor Alcacer is an expert in international strategy, growth and innovation. He has served on numerous boards of journals and is an associate editor of Management Science. He received the Best Paper Award from the Druid Conference, the Meritorious Service Award from Management Science, the Green Hill Award for Outstanding Service from Harvard, and the Michigan Ross Distinguished PhD Alumni Award. Juan's research has been published in diverse journals, American Journal of Sociology, Review of Economics and Statistics, Management Science, SMJ, Research Policy, and JIPS, among others. In addition to stellar research, he is very innovative in teaching international business and strategy. And maybe we can talk about the Field Global Immersion course in a few minutes, which brings up uh, apparently 900 students to 15 cities around the world to work on a product or service challenge. Thank you, Juan, for joining us. And thanks, Ilias, for, for having me. It's a, it's a pleasure to uh, Juan, uh, first question always is, what did you want to become when you were a child? So I always wanted to be a scientist, uh, but not, not the type of scientist that I am now. I, I was thinking more about somebody that is in a lab. Uh, I would have loved to study medicine uh, and being uh, uh, looking for the cure for cancer or something like that. Hmm. Unfortunately, I'm very covert. So I could have done the research part, but in order to get to the research part, I also have to go through the medical training. Mm -hmm. And I was sure that I will not be, I, I never be able to, to do that. So I went for something that, that will give me uh, the chance to do research, but it's not the type of research that I thought when I was a kid. Juan, where did you grow up? So um, I grew up in Caracas, Venezuela. So my family is from Spain. Um, my father, my, my father's family uh, was involved in the civil war. And when the civil war ended, they had to uh, leave Barcelona and uh, they moved to France. And after France, they were in France for almost 20 years. And after that, they went to Venezuela. And when Franco died in 1975, the whole family went back to Spain. Interesting. And can you remember as a child, the difference between domestic versus international? Uh, I, yes, absolutely. Uh, Given that the story that I just tell, told you, uh, we were always, there were always these stories of my family living in Spain, living in France, then living in Venezuela. Uh, we were uh, doing different food to all my classmates when we were in Caracas. So it was from, from very early on that I realized that, that uh, we were for a different group. Uh, we will go to uh, uh, the Spanish club in, in Caracas. Um, every summer I was sent to, to Spain uh, or, or to Europe in general to, to visit the family. So it was very clear. I remember when I was four years old was the first trip that I remember going back to Spain. And uh, I remember people telling me, what do you do? We speak Spanish in the same way that we speak. Or uh, uh, I was amazed that, that it was almost 10 p.m. at night and it was still sunny. So I, I was starting to ask, why is that the case? Where, 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 where? In, in Venezuela is in the, in the equator. And at 6 p.m., regardless of the time of the year, it's, it's, it starts to be uh, uh, night. So there were all these things that, that made me realize, well, I, I'm in a different place. I am a different person. Uh, my family has different costumes than the costumes of the people around me. So I, I was very aware of the, of the concept of foreignness. 
very early on. Uh, Juan, something that you wouldn't put on your CV, but something interesting uh, for others. Um, I love to dance. Uh, I've been dancing since I remember. Uh, part of, the, of this uh, uh, issue of living overseas was that we were trained to speak uh, not only Spanish, that it will be Castilian for us, but also Catalonian from my father's side and Galician from my mother's side. And we also basically learned the, the folk dances from both regions. So since I was very, very young, I was sent to these dancing classes. Uh, and then uh, in America, there is this very strong culture of dancing in parties and so, so forth. The way that you date and, and you start your social life is, is through parties where everybody's dancing. So from all these this, this different <laughs> channels, uh, I was forced to learn how to dance very early on, and, and I loved it. So for many, many years, I was dancing as much as possible. Super interesting. Okay, uh, if you stop doing what you're doing today, uh, what, would be the, uh, what would be the second best career path for you? I would love to, to, to work, for instance, either uh, in the foreign service uh, uh, for, for Spain, or work uh, for the European Union, work for a multilateral type of institution where I could see different countries, see different cultures and understand the relationships between all those cultures and how economic development mm. changes uh, according to the, the contextual reality on, on all, the, all these places. Interesting. Uh, regrets, have you got any? <clears throat> yes, many, way too many to, to, to count. Uh, many projects that I, I, I never finished uh, many data collections that took years and years, and I never got a paper out of that. Um, so it, it is more about the roads that, that I thought that I would like to travel, but I never traveled, like writing a paper that I wanted to write or doing something that I wanted to do and I never got to do it. So those are the, the, the regrets, my, the, my biggest regrets. It's more about what I didn't do than more what I have done. Uh, it's, it's more the, 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 the roles that, that I never went through. That's interesting. Uh, what did you learn from your biggest failure? Perseverance, that uh, you, you should keep doing, doing it. So uh, one of these uh, projects, is, is a, uh, it was a huge collection of data and uh, we never used it. And, and, and I and basically, the biggest part of, of, of my regret was that uh, there was a junior person involved in the project. So I always wonder if she had not put so much effort on collecting this data, maybe she could have done even a better job than she did. Uh, so what I learned is that that you should try, well, two things. One, that you should be very careful uh, before investing in, in a project. And the other one is try to, to end the, the project and, and try to keep going. Sometimes it looks like there is no end, ending, that there is no path forward, but there's almost always a path. The thing is that you haven't thought enough about, about that path. What are you most proud of? Uh, I'm proud of, of, of some of my papers. Uh, uh, and, and becoming, as I get older, I'm more senior, I'm getting more and more proud about the teaching and, and, the, and the way that you are affecting people uh, in the way that they think after taking your class. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and it's a way to make a difference. It's, it's a way to multiply your, your contributions. So when we write a paper, 
20 people, 50 people may read the paper. When you are teaching, you can be uh, developing a leader that is gonna be the CEO of a company and that company is gonna have 20,000 workers and is gonna be doing all these interesting things uh, in the world and, and, and in their, their home country. So I, I, I'm getting more and more um, reward for trying to develop these people. And when they send you an email, when they send you a picture, when they stop by your office 10 years down the road, and I said, well, uh, uh, I remember when you said this in this in this class and, and that has an impact on me. So that part of, of, the, of our profession, which is not only the research, but it's also the, the, the teaching, um, is becoming more and more uh, rewarding for me in the, in the last years. How do you manage the uh, time needed to allocate to, for instance, uh, we started with the global immersion course, the field global immersion course. It, it's a big undertaking. How do you manage your time? Uh, I, I wish that I had good, good, good tips on, on that. Uh, basically, my, 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 my way to solve that problem of scarcity of time is not sleeping. Uh, it is uh, getting up very early and have four hours of work before 8 a.m., uh, which I don't recommend uh, to anybody. So um, I'm, I'm not very productive. Uh, as I said, I have so many projects that I never finish, so many data that are still sitting in my, my hard drive. So I'm not a very good person to give advice on how to manage time. What I do is brute force and, and try to work my, more hours and more hours. As you get older, that 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 stamina starts not present anymore. So I I don't think that I have a very good uh, ad advice uh, for that. I try to be as productive as possible, but um, I need to have some time for myself uh, and, and some time for uh, for thinking. Normally, that is the time that 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 is very early in the morning. So I normally wake up very early, have a few hours of work, and then I start all the meetings and all the conversations. Okay. Uh, Juan, uh, let's talk about research a bit. Uh, uh, say you're stranded in a small village, uh, so you're going to be talking to uh, outsiders, people who don't read your work regularly. But how do you explain your work and why is it important? How do you explain the importance of your work to people who don't read your uh, regularly? That, that hypothetical situation that you're giving me, uh, I, I have lived all my life. Uh, uh, I'm coming from a family where nobody's an academic, at least not in the previous generations. Everybody's in, in the new generations, most of us have, have a PhD, but in the previous ones. So every time that my uncles and aunts and grand uncles and grand aunts ask me, what do you do for a living? And I would say something about research that we were looking like, hmm, <laughs> yeah, right, okay. So I, I learned to say that I'm a teacher. I, I'm, I'm basically, uh, the way that I, 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 I make a living is, is by teaching. But, but in terms of research, I think I always been very interested in understanding why firms get together and when they, they're apart. Uh, and what are the drivers of, of that uh, location and co-location of, of, of different firms? And, and I think it's important because it drives a lot of our interactions uh, and it drives a lot of the economic activity that, that uh, determines the, the welfare of, of society in a given point in time. So uh, that, that will be the, the, the research spiel, but, but the, the spiel that I will normally give is that I'm a teacher, sorry. I, that's the only way that I can explain what I do because uh, when they, they will ask me, and how many papers you write uh, per year? And I say, maybe one, it's like, they look at you and say, really? You spend a whole year just writing 25 pages? Um, but, but in terms of, of somebody like you or a researcher, I, I guess my, my answer is, is uh, I'm interested in how, uh, firms geographically disperse and concentrate. 
I, I tried to explain to my father what resource based view was, and that didn't really work out that well. No, <laughs> I, I gave up on that. I, I, I just went the same. I, I just teach. <laughs> okay, uh, about omitted variables in IB research or understudied areas in IB. What are some of the understudied areas in the field? I think more than a variable per se, I think we, we sometimes we're missing the historical perspective. Mm. And, and, and uh, many of the things that we are looking at and we are measuring are consequence of, of historical events. And um, in the last few years, because of problems with time, uh, I try to, to be very careful on the type of seminars that I go. And, and to be honest, I, I derive a lot of, of pleasure and knowledge to go into two seminars that are beyond uh, the business school. One is the history department seminar, and the other one is the psychology. Uh, and particularly in psychology, uh, one of the things that sometimes I, 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 I don't think that, that we develop enough in, in IB is that understanding of the psychological underpinnings of culture uh, and, 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 and individual underpinnings of, of those things. So I, I would say that, that for me, the, the two areas where at least I, I feel that I'm not well-trained and I would like to know more, and I think that I have more effect in IB uh, is history and, and psychology. Interesting. About, uh, well, you don't have time to really uh, think through, but uh, idle curiosity. Uh, what does your mind think of? How, how do you come up with these creative ideas, interesting research? Uh, it is to start off with, not to finish them off, but uh, where, where do they come from? Yeah, they come from either talking to managers or reading about problems in the press of a, a company or a situation that I cannot explain with the tools that I have. So for instance, if I read something about company X going to this country and being very successful, and they, they tell the story and I start saying, well, that doesn't really make sense with the OLI framework or with resource-based view or with this or with that. So if I cannot explain it with the tools that I have, then it means that either the story is not right, uh, the tool has some limits, or there is something missing in the tools that I have. And the same, time, the same thing happens when you talk to a manager that comes to you for advice. And suddenly you have no idea what to tell the person because that company or that person is doing everything that you would think is, is doable. Uh, but that is not enough. So that means that there's something missing. So normally those are the places when I start thinking about why, why, why I cannot give an answer. And, and I start reading and it may be that I'm, I'm not aware of some part of the literature and the new papers that are trying to address that, that, that problem. But that's when, when I start thinking about I'm not comfortable with the answer that I gave, or I don't have an answer. So let, let me try to think about how, how, how can I get an answer. Looking at the trends in IB, uh, you're, you're coming to conferences, you see these conference papers, you know what's going on uh, in the world. In the next five to 10 years, what's going to happen? What is the next big uh, question or area of IB? Uh, I think for a while we were a little bit in a, in a, in a steady state where we were talking about globalization, 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 and we were studying about the, the, how companies are, are outsourcing and offshoring and dividing the value chain in different places. In the last few years, we, we have seen how fragile that system is. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and fragile for many different things. Uh, there are some political undercurrents. 
that are going against globalization. Uh, there are some uh, changes on the way that we perceive the economic development that globalization brings. And, um, and there are many things that we assume that we're in one way and we are starting to realize that they are not. So I, I do believe that there is a lot of, of research that has to be done to understand why we miss all these cues. Uh, these processes were not coming from one day to another. Uh, they were evolving in, in, in front of us and we didn't talk about it. So I remember back in the year two, 2003 when I was at NYU and there was a, um, a conference on uh, offshoring and outsourcing. That was the big thing at that point in time. And uh, there was this scholar, Bill Beaumont, that was also at NYU. It's a, it's a very famous uh, a, um, uh, econometrician and, and, and person in the in the IO literature. And um, we were talking, uh, so the, the session was about the, the effects of offshoring society. And there were all these economists that were talking about blah, 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 blah. Everything wins, everybody wins, everybody wins. And he basically raised their hands and it's like, no, I know the papers. And there are all these corner solutions of, of these uh, general equilibrium models where uh, there's some part of society where that's going to be losing. And part of the, of, the, of the conversation at the beginning in, in all these the papers in international trade was uh, the role of government trying to uh, redistribute the gains from some parts of the society to the parts of the society that were losing. And the reaction in the, in, in the room was like, oh, no, no, that's, that's never going to happen. That's never going to happen. And, and, and now, 10 years later, uh, 15 years later, we, we, we have seen the consequences of that. We've seen Brexit. We have seen the rise of, of, of uh, nationalism in, in different countries. So I, I do believe that, that, that uh, from this process, we have to learn as, as a community two things. One is that how do we miss all, all this? And not everybody misses it. But in general, many people were, were missing it. Uh, and the other one is, uh, where do we go from here? And, and uh, what, what is the new way of globalization? Uh, is it going to be a, a, a muted globalization? Is it going to transform into something else? What, what, what is it? And, and, and I guess a third question is, uh, as a scholars in IB, what is our role uh, in, in, in clarifying and, and sending the message about the good things and the bad things about globalization? So I, 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 I imagine that in the next few years, we're going to be talking more and more about this. The other area where I think that, that we're still not totally clear with the answer is, does globalization and the way that multinationals work change because of technology? And, and in what ways? Uh, in the last few years before COVID, uh, I, was, uh, I, I was telling you before uh, this interview, uh, I've been traveling a lot to the Middle East and Turkey in particular. And I've also been traveling a lot to Africa. And it's amazing what is happening in some areas of Africa. Uh, so it's, it's not totally clear for me that, that the paradigms that we have to explain how these companies are going overseas from Nigeria to, uh, uh, to Kenya or to South Africa, from South Africa to all these places, uh, if the problems are the same or not. Uh, so the, the, the phenomenon seems to be a little bit different. I need to study it a little more, more in detail, but you have companies that are basically uh, uh, jumping <laughs> from, one, from one way to do business to another one, 
without going from the traditional steps that we have seen in, in traditional uh, international business. So uh, why is that happening? Uh, and is, is, is that going to be uh, staying that way or not? What are the consequences? So um, besides the, the issue of globalization and deglobalization, uh, I, I also think that, that there's going to be some interesting work on understanding uh, the, these new business models that have been developing in some parts of Africa and how they travel uh, um, to other countries, how they travel across boundaries. Uh, and there may be that, that we realize that everything that we know about, uh, about uh, how American firms went to Europe, European firms went to, to the United States, Japanese firms went to overseas, South Korean firms went to overseas. Uh, maybe there's nothing definitely new, but it seems that technology may be changing some of the things about ownership uh, uh, and about benefits. Uh, so it, we, we may want to revisit a little bit uh, our tools and see if, if they are still up to to the standard to explain many of the things that we're seeing. Can we talk a couple more minutes about the uh, changing business models in Africa and uh, African country, uh, companies? Why is this thing happening? Is it because of the Belt and Road initiatives? Is it, is it something uh, internal? Is it something more uh, dynamically evolving in their domestic market or coming from overseas? Yeah, I, I think part of the explanation is uh, the, the, the context of each one of these countries, how different it is, is what my, one of my colleagues, uh, Terun Kana, calls institutional voids, and how these companies basically react to institutional voids. And we always thought about institutional voids as an as a impediment for economic development. Uh, what I observe is that those institutional voids are still there, but there are people that are very smart that go around those and that create business models that, uh, that are built on that institutional bond. And, um, and in a way that is, a, a, when you look at, 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 at why a company goes overseas and on the literature on that, is that you develop a, 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 an advantage and then you, you try to apply it in, in a new context. Here, it, the advantage is being able to, to work in this very weird context where there are many institutional voids. Uh, and there are companies to go to different places in the same area uh, and doing things that, that traditional multinationals could never be able to do. Uh, and you wonder if uh, as these, these institutional votes are solved and these, these institutions are developed, if, uh, if this advantage is not there anymore. But, but at the same time, um, I'm not totally sure that there's a new uh, uh, problem, but, but I would like to be sure that we have tools to explain it uh, in, in the right way. Thank you. Uh, Juan, uh, let's talk about advice and mentoring uh, for a couple of minutes. And you said uh, you had two issues. Um, uh, first of all, how much time and effort to invest in? And then uh, the second item was how to end these projects, how, how to take them to fruition, uh, to, yeah. to complete them. Uh, well, what are some of the common mistakes? I'm, I'm, you've, you've seen PhD students in Michigan, you've seen people at NYU, uh, you, 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 you advised many students, uh, inc including me, actually. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, from, from, the, from the distance, yes, but yes. Um, uh, what are some of the common mistakes that you see? Things that people should not do uh, 
Yeah. So sometimes, um, sometimes I have the feeling that that uh, some students go with whatever is fashionable at that point in time, uh, instead of of trying to go for the very fundamental questions, and 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 they assume that the fundamental questions have been fully answered, and I I will disagree on on, on that particular area. So um, we have some evidence in the, in certain contexts of things working in one way or another. But we're not totally sure that those uh, relationships cause and effect are also applied to new contexts. Like for instance, in Africa, to what extent, whatever we know about diversification, whatever we know about the stages of internationalization, uh, do I apply also to uh, business models that are coming from Africa? And I'm not totally sure that that's the case, and, and, but that's a fundamental question. It's, it's about internationalization stages, it's about diversification, uh, it's about human resources, how they deal with human resources in an environment where trust uh, is very weak uh, as an institution. Um, so at the end, those are very, sometimes I have the feeling that, that a lot of our uh, common wisdom on how the world works is based on the United States and Europe. And when you start moving it to other places, it starts basically not being as perfect. Uh, and the question is how far away we have to move our tools to explain what we observe. And those are fundamental uh, problems. So sometimes I think doctoral students are, are all in love with Uber and how Uber is gonna expand overseas or, or in AI. Now everybody's doing artificial intelligence and, and it's important to do that. But it's important to see artificial intelligence, how is that affecting the, 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 the primitives? Uh, so sometimes I, I have the feeling that people much into whatever is, is hot in a given year, uh, but, but, but forgetting that, that, that there are some fundamentals that are still not totally uh, developed. Um, other... other um, issues that, that I have observed with some students is that they get a data set and they try to get a question out of the data uh, and, and a paper. And uh, normally those papers are not necessarily the best. <laughs> um, so I still believe that, that the old school of, I have a question. Let me try to find out what is the best data set out there that I can get or that I can build to answer this question. So uh, sometimes, I, it's the old uh, joke that we look at the key in the places where the light is, instead of looking at in the places where actually the keys, the lost keys maybe. Uh, so we have to start moving a little bit the, the, the light. Uh, and that means basically uh, getting new data sets, getting new, collecting new data sets uh, and investing on that. Um, so sometimes I, I have the feeling that some doctoral students go to go too easily to get, let's get the patent data. Uh, it's very easy. I can download it in five minutes. Uh, but really, what can you contribute? What, what is the, the, the value of the marginal paper that is using the patent data uh, versus trying to invest and trying to, to see, I, I want to do some research on X. Where can I find the right data to answer that question? Mm -hmm. So that, that, that I would say that those are the two uh, main issues that I have seen some, some doctoral students. Uh, who was your advisor? Uh, I have multiple advisors. Uh, I have two chairs in my committee. One was Bernie Young, 
Um, the other one was Gordon. Gordon was in Michigan for the first two years, uh, but then he moved to NYU. And uh, so I uh, basically, Gordon Hanson became my, my advisor. Uh, but all everybody in my committee, I them uh, to be my advisors. So uh, it was also Oxley and uh, Francine Lafontaine. Uh, so th those four people. On top of that, I, I was lucky to, to work in the William Davidson Institute at a point in time, was just created. And they're studying uh, all the countries that were escaping the barriers of communism. So it was that was the time where the, the Soviet uh, collapsed, the Berlin Wall collapsed. So there was all this research on, on and understanding how Hungary, how the Czech Republic, how, how all the Eastern European countries were uh, switching uh, capital uh, and sold, uh, research transition economies. So I was lucky that it was it was created at a point in time when I was uh, in, in my doctoral degree, and it was directed by two wonderful James Weiner and Cathy Terrell, both are international economists, they were economists, and they were uh, so they 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 were part of my of my committee, they were always there teach me how to write papers and, and try me the things you don't learn in class, how to do a review, uh, how to clean data, how to uh, behave as a scholar in all the facets of, of your life. So uh, even if they were not in the day by day of my dissertation, they were there uh, teaching me those intangibles. So I will say that, that uh, Bernie Young was very influential. Gordon Hanson was very influential, but John Oxley was very influential. Uh, Jang and Cathy and, and Francine were also very influential. So I, I don't, I, I was lucky. Uh, I, I was lucky that I had so many people behind uh, that be, behind me and, and helping me in every single step. Uh, people like Miles Shaver, uh, he graduated uh, before me from the same program. Every time that I had any doubt about anything, I will call Miles on the phone and he will be very, very uh, generous with his time. So I, I, I any, any of the uh, things that you re read about uh, any potential achievement that, that I had, it was, it was a village behind me. And, and I was lucky that I was in the right place at the right time with these people because they, they, they were carrying me away uh, through the whole process, so the, if without them, I, I would have been, I, I would have not be here. Uh, uh, thank you, uh, Juan. Last question: What is one question that I should have asked you but haven't? What is the question that you should have asked me and you didn't ask me? Well, that's 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 the, the hardest question that you can ask me, and and, 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 and I, I knew that 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 could come. It was one of the potential questions, but as the the, the one that that I didn't prepare. Um, That, that has been very difficult for me in my career is the transitions. Uh, so I, I would have loved you to ask me not about only about doctoral students, about juniors, uh, but also about when you become more senior. Uh, once you get tenure, your values and your priorities start changing. You don't need to publish the next paper. It's good if you publish it, but you don't have to. 
and and there's this this uh, sense of meaning of what can I do for society, given my my set of skills. Um, so I, I would love you to to ask me more about about that more mature stage of your of your career. Uh, we tend to always look at getting tenure, getting a job, graduate first, graduating, then getting a job, then getting tenure. But if you do all those things okay and in the right timing, you still have 30 years of your career ahead of you. Uh, and that's a lot of time. And, 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 and during that time, your, your life is different. Your kids are growing. Uh, your responsibilities in institutions are different. You are asked to be in committees. You are asked to be many different things. So the, the demand on your time basically is and what that means is that you have to be even more careful how you allocate your time. So I, I would love that you have asked me about what to do at that point in time. And I would love to hear from other people that have gone through that process. Uh, I didn't know that there's this, uh, 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 probably you, you, you hear about this, there's this third year free fall term that in your doctoral program that after you finish your, your courses and, and you take your exams, your qualifying exams, and you start writing your dissertation, there's this lack of a structure around you. Uh, something like that happens after you get tenure. Uh, so all, all the drive that you have to publish, 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 is still there because you still like to do that. But then all these other things start coming in your way. Committees, family, uh, uh, executive education, write a book. Should I write a book? Should I write up another paper? Um, we were talking about some papers that you would like to write, but you know that they're not going to be going through the uh, review process uh, because you either don't have the idea uh, completely fully developed or you don't have the data or you don't have something. So you would like to do something that's more conceptual. Uh, so how do you do that? Uh, you already have seen your, your papers across the years. You have seen how people cite your papers and how sometimes they are miscited. Uh, how can you go back to all those things and say something about not every paper person, but about the accumulation of the papers. So th there is some, some skills, again, that you have to, to retool uh, and, and you have to acquire after you get tenure. So whatever I learned in econometrics when I was doing my econometric classes is not valid anymore. So how do I update myself? How do I teach myself to, to learn all the time? I not take a class in machine learning. I cannot take a class in many different things. So how do I learn through my students? Uh, how do I keep myself updated through my students and through? So th there is this other part of, of your career life that is coming after tenure that it is it's supposed to be head, but at the same time, it, it gives you a, a lot of responsibilities. So I would, I would love to, 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 to have more of a conversation what you do in those years, because your time is, is being shrunk uh, dramatically, so you don't have the time. But at the same time, your level of, of your capability to synthesize is by far bigger. And you can see back, you can see what other people have done in many different areas. You can start connecting things. And there are not many outlets where you can do that. You can write a book. Uh, you can write a, a, a special issue, like introduction of a special issue. But there are... And you can still do your normal paper with your empirical data and so on and so forth, but those tend to be a little bit narrower. Uh, so th th there is this, this problem of how do you 
develop ideas that are a little more, more out there, that you would like to get feedback, that you would like to, to, to get some, some uh, pushback in, on those ideas. And uh, so I, I, I would have loved to, to, that you asked me how to do that. And if you have the answer, I would even would love that even because I'm still uh, trying to get that, that, that answer. Well, without asking the question, I got the answers. Most of it, actually. But uh, thank you so much, Juan. Uh, this was very helpful. I learned a lot. I'm sure the audience will agree with me. Thank you for your time. Thank you, Lingas, for having me.